That Printer of Udell's by Harold Bell Wright. Read by Amy Zuck on Anchor from Grandma's Bookshelf. Chapter 13 The Gift of an Infidel. The committee appointed by the society called on Uncle Bobby at his office and found him deep in a letter to an old lady whose small business affairs he was trying to straighten out. He dropped the matter at once when they entered, and after shaking hands as though he had not seen them for years, said, Now tell me all about it. To be sure, Charlie here has had some talk with me, but I want to get at your ideas. Our brightest idea, I think, said the leader with a smile, is to get your help. Uncle Bobby laughed heartily. <laughs> I'd reckon you'd be around. I'm generally kept posted by the young folks when there's anything to do. To be sure, I ain't got much education except in money matters and real estate, but I don't know. I reckon education's only the trimmings, anyhow. It's the whole sense that counts. I've seen some college fellers that was just like the pies a stingy old landlady of mine used to make. They was all outside. To be sure, they looked mighty nice, though. Now tell me what you want. When the young folks had detailed to him Dick's plan, and he had questioned them on some points, the old gentleman leaned back in his chair and thoughtfully stroked his face. Then he said, Now I tell you what you do. Maybe I handle the property end of this little, the best. To be sure, folks would talk with me when they might not be listening to you, because they'd be watching for a chance to get me into a deal, you see. For business is a sort of catch-as-catch-you-can, Anyhow, you fix it. So just let me work that end and you get Charlie here and some more to help and drum up the storekeepers to find out if they'll let you have their barrels and boxes and then go for the citizens and see how many would buy the kindling wood. Tell them what it would cost. Say, ten cents a week for one stove. To be sure, some will use more than others, but give them an ID. Then we'll all come together again and swap reports and see what we got. For the next few days, the young people went from store to store and house to house, telling their plan and asking the citizens to support it by their patronage. Some turned them away with rudeness, some listened and smiled at their childish folly, some said they couldn't afford it, and some gave them encouragement by entering heartily into the scheme. With but a few exceptions, the merchants promised the greater part of their boxes and barrels, and one man even gave them the ruins of an old cowshed, which he said he would be glad to have cleared away. Meanwhile, Uncle Bobby interviewed the businessmen, both members of the church and those who were not. He argued, threatened and pleaded, studied plans, consulted architects and contractors, figured and schemed, and when besieged by the young people for results, only shook his head. Just hold your horses and wait for the meeting. It don't pay to fire a gun before you load it. And none but Charlie Bowen noticed that the older gentleman's face grew grim whenever the subject was introduced and the young man guessed that the outlook was not so promising as Uncle Bobby would like. Then, one Wednesday night, the society met again in the church. The weather was cold and stormy, but as at the previous meeting, neither, nearly every member was present. When the committee had made its report, and it was known that the merchants and citizens would support the movement by the patronage and contributions, a wave of enthusiasm swept over the room, while a call for Mr. Wicks was enforced by loud applause. Uncle Bobby, who had been sitting by Reverend Cameron's side, arose and came slowly forward. 
Turning, he faced the little company, and his honest old eyes were wet, as he said in a trembling voice, I didn't want to come here tonight, young folks. I just tell you I was ashamed to come, but I knew I ought to. And now I'm ashamed I didn't want to. Might have known better. For I can see right now, as I look into your faces, that Brother Cameron is right. That what I have to tell you won't make no difference. An ominous hush fell upon the company. To be sure, we may have to wait a while, but God will show a way. We can conquer this old devil of indifference yet. He paused and drew a long breath. Well, I found a big house that's for sale. Just the thing we need. And it could be bought and fixed up in first class shape for about nine hundred dollars. I sold the property myself to Mr. Udell for fifteen hundred about a year ago. And I want to tell you young folks right now that whether he's a Christian or not, George Dell is the whitest man in this city, and the fellow what says anything against him's got me to wit. The old gentleman paused and glared about him without a thought of how his words sounded. But the young people who knew him well only answered with a clapping of hands, which was a tribute to Uncle Bobby's heart and character, rather than to his unconscious reckless of speech, or to his love for the man whom he companioned. But when he went on to say that of all the men he had interviewed, church members and all, only Udell had met him halfway and had agreed to give the law if they would raise the money to pay for the house, they applauded with vim the generosity of the man. Just think, continued Uncle Bobby, that among all the church members in this city, I couldn't raise $200 for such a cause. One of them says no, because he just bought a new span of carriage horses. Huh. I told him he might ride to hell behind fine horses, but he'd not feel any better when he got there. Another said he'd just put $500 into the new lodge temple that he couldn't spend any more. I asked him if Jesus is a member of his lodge, and he said he reckoned not. I said, well, we want to build a house and a home for Christ, and you say you can't. Seems to me, if I was you, I wouldn't call Christ my redeemer in prayer house meetings so much. Another just fixed his home. Another just paid for a new stock of goods, and so with them all. They all had some excuse handy, and I don't know what to do. I'm up a stump this time for sure. We've got the material to work up. We've got the people to buy the goods. We've got the lot. And there we're stuck, for we can't get the house. I can't anyway. We're just like the fellow that went fishing. Had a big basket to carry home his fish, a nice new joint pole with a reel and fixins, and a good strong linen line, and a nice bait box full of big fat worms. And when he got to the river, he didn't have no hook. And the fish just swam right under his nose and laughed at him because he couldn't touch him. And I still believe that God will show us the way yet. Though maybe not. Perhaps taint for the best for us to do this. To be sure, though, I thought it was. And so did Brother Cameron, and so did you. <sighs> but I don't know. And the old man took his seat. After a long silence, one or two offered suggestions. But could not help matters. Reverend Cameron was called for and tried to speak encouragingly, but it was hard work. And it seemed that the plans were coming to an inglorious end when Clara Wilson sprang to her feet. I'm not a bit surprised at this, she said, while the young people, forgetting the praise they had just bestowed upon George Adele, thought that her rosy cheeks and sparkling eyes were caused by her excitement. 
I don't wonder that the businessmen won't go into such a scheme. They haven't got any faith in it. It isn't so much that they've not got the money or don't want to help, but it's because they don't trust the church. They've seen so many things started and have supported so many, and still no real good comes out of it that they're all afraid. They put money into their lodges because they see the results there. I believe there has been more wealth put into the churches than has ever been put into lodges, but all we've got to show for it is fine organs and fine windows and fine talk. While the lodges do practical work, we can't expect folks to take hold of our plan until we show what we're going to do. We're starting at the wrong end. We haven't done anything ourselves yet. I wish I was a man. I'd show you, she said with a snap of her black eyes. You're a pretty good feller if you ain't a man, chuckled Uncle Bobby. This raised a laugh and caused them all to feel better. That's all right. You can laugh if you want to, said Clara. But I tell you, we can do it if we had a mind to. Why, there's enough jewelry here tonight to raise more than half the amount. It's not... Let's not give up now when we've got so far. Let's have a big meeting of the society and have speeches and tell what has been done and see what we can raise. Just make the people believe that we're going to have this thing anyway. Mr. President, I move you that we have an open meeting of the society one week from next Sunday and have a special committee be appointed to work upon a good program. Cameron jumped to his feet. With all my heart, I second that motion. And before the president could speak, a chorus of eyes was followed by prolonged applause. Claire was promptly named chairman of the committee, and in a few minutes they were trooping from the building out into the storm, but with warm hearts and merry voices. George Udell had not been to call on Clara Wilson since the night he had found the man frozen in the streets. Indeed, he had not even spoken to her since the funeral. He had seen her, though, once, when she had met him on the street with several friends, and at other times when he had glanced up from his work by the window as she passed the office. All this was strange to Clara. What could be the matter, she thought as she walked along with her friends after the meeting. George has never acted so before. She wanted to talk to him about the incident of that stormy night when they had parted so abruptly. She wanted him to know how proud she was that he had proven so kind in the matter of the funerals. What a warm heart he has beneath all his harsh speeches, she thought. And she could not help but contrast him, much to his credit, with many professional Christians she knew. And then Mr. Wicks had spoken in the business meeting of his generosity and had talked so strongly of his goodness. No wonder her cheeks burned with pride, while her heart whispered strange things. When the young woman had said good night to her companions on reaching her home and had shut herself in her room, she asked herself again and again, was she right in always saying no? Was she not unnecessarily cruel to a friend who had shown and was showing herself so worthy of her love? Oh, why was he not a Christian? And when Mrs. Wilson crept into her daughter's room that night to get an extra comforter from the closet to put over the crib of Clara's small brother, she was much surprised to see a big tear that glistened in the light of the lamp roll from beneath the dark lashes as her eldest child lay sobbing in her sleep. The next morning the girl was strangely silent and went about her work without the usual cheerful whistle, for Clara would whistle. It was her only musical accomplishment. But toward noon, after arousing herself from a prolonged spell of silence staring into the fire, during which her mother tried in vain to draw her into conversation, 
She suddenly became her own self again and went about getting dinner in her usual manner. Then when the dishes were washed, she appeared in her street dress and hat. Land sakes alive, child, you ain't going out today, be you? said Mrs. Wilson and with her hands on her hips in her usual attitude of amazement or wrath. Yes, mother, I've got a little business downtown that I can't put off. I won't be gone long. Is there anything I can do for you? But look how it's snowing. You'll be wet through and catch your death, sure. I wish to goodness you'd have more sense and try to take some care of yourself, replied her mother. Not the first time I've been wet. The walk will do me good. And soon the determined young lady was pushing her way through the snow and the wind towards the business part of the city. The boy in the printing office had gone out on an errand, and George and Dick were both at the composing case, setting up a local politician's speech, which was to be issued in the form of a circular, when Clara walked in, stamping her feet and shaking the snow from her umbrella and skirt. Udell started forward. "'The great shade of the immortal Benjamin Franklin!' he shouted. "'What in the name of all that's decent are you doing here?' and he placed a chair near the stove with one hand as he captured the umbrella with the other. "'I'm going to get warm just now,' Clara replied with an odd little laugh, and Dick noticed that the wind or cold or something had made her face very red. "'Come here, sit down,' she commanded. "'I want to talk business to you. Don't stand there as though you've never seen me before.' "'Well, it's been ages since I saw you,' he declared, seating himself on the edge of the waste box. Yes, all of twenty-four hours. I passed you yesterday, and you looked right in the face and never said howdy. If you were anyone else, George Udell, I'd make you wait a while before you got another chance to do me that way. George drummed on the edge of the box and whistled softly. Then, looking anxiously towards Dick, he said, How are you getting along with that stuff, old man? Almost through, replied Dick with a never-to-be-forgotten wink. But I believe I'll run those Dodgers to the big press and let you finish the politics. All right, I'll reckon that'd be better, answered Udell, and soon the whir of the motor and the stamp of the press filled the room. We are awful busy now, Udell said, turning to Clara again. Ought to be working this minute. Why haven't you been to see me, George? persisted the girl, a strange light coming into her eyes. There's so many things I want to talk to you about. Thought I'd let you come and see me a while. Turn about is fair play. Besides, I don't think it would be safe in this cold weather. It's chilly enough business even in the summertime. Clara held out persistently. George Udell, you knew very well I'd come here if you stayed away from my home. It's real mean of you when you knew how bad I wanted to see you to make me come all this way in this snow. George looked troubled. I'll take my death of cold and then how you'll feel. George looked still more worried. I've not felt very well lately anyway. George looked frightened. And I came all this way down here just to see what was the matter. Udell looked happy. And now you don't want me to stay and I'll go home again. She reached for her umbrella, but Udell grasped it at the same time. Whirr, whirr went the motor and clank, clank, clank sounded the press. Dick was feeding the machine and must necessarily keep his eye on his work while the noise prevented any stray bits of the conversation from reaching his ears. Besides this, Dick was just now full of sympathy. Clara let go of her end of the umbrella, and George, with an exaggerated expression of rapture on his face, kissed the place where her hand had held it. The young lady tried to frown and looked disgusted. Then, for several moments, neither spoke. 
At last Clara said, I wanted to tell you how proud and glad I am of the things you've been doing. You're a good man, George, to take care of that poor dead boy the way you did. Why? You see, I had sort of a fellow feeling for him, muttered Udell. I'd just been frozen myself. And that young people's society business, it's just grand, went on Clara. Only think, you've given even more than all the church members combined. Udell grunted. <laughs> no danger of me losing on that offer. They'll never raise enough for the house. Oh, yes, they will. I'm the chairman of the committee. And then she told him of the meeting and how Uncle Bobby had praised him. Udell felt his heart thaw rapidly, and the two chatted away as no chilly blast had ever come between them. And yet, Clara, with all your professed love for me, you won't allow me a single privilege of a lover, and I can have no hope of the future. It'd better stop now. Very well, George. It can stop now if you like. But I never could live without taking it out with you and telling you how glad I am for your gift to the society. Look here, don't go and make any mistake on that line. I'm giving nothing to the society or the church. That bit of land goes to the poor, cold, hungry fellows who are down on their luck, like Dick here was. Tell you what, though, Clara. If you'll say yes, I'll add the house and enough to furnish it besides. The girl hesitated for just a moment. Here was a temptation added to temptation. Then she pulled on her rubbers and rose to go. No, George, no. I cannot. You know you would not need to buy me if I felt the right to say yes. But I'm going to keep on asking you just the same, said George. You won't get angry if I keep it up, will you? I guess not. I feel rather badly when you don't. I don't like to say no. But I would feel awfully if you didn't give me the chance to say it. Goodbye, George. Goodbye, dearest. You can't forbid me for loving you anyway. Someday you'll take me for what I am. Clara shook her head. You know, she said. As the door closed, Dick wheeled around from the press, holding out his ink-stained hand to George. What's the matter? said the other wonderingly, but grasping the outstretched hand of his helper. I want to shake hands with a man, that's all, said Dick. Why don't you join the church and win her? Because if I did that, I wouldn't be worthy of her, said George. You have strange ideas for this day and age, replied Dick. Yes, I know, but I can't help it. Wish I could, continued Udell. You're a better man than half the church members, Dick said in answer. George shook his head. Won't do, Dicky. You know it as well as I do. It's too big a thing to go into for anything but itself. What is it Mother used to say? No other gods before me or something like that? And Dick said to himself as he turned back to the press, I have indeed shaken hands with a man.